Amen. Forgot my Bible. We're going to continue our study of the Belhar Confession now. And if you want to grab a Bible, now would be a good time to do so. We're going to be reading Luke 16, beginning at verse 19 together. That's on the second set of page numbers in the New Testament in the Green Bibles that are in the sanctuary, page 61. So get that ready. And we're also going to read from the Belhar Confession together. But first, I'm going to pray for us. So let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word and these teachings on justice, uh, we ask that we keep an open heart and mind and soul and that we seek uh, to understand what might be true, what you are trying to tell us is true about these things. So help us, God, if something makes us uncomfortable, to not shy away and shut the door to that uncomfortable feeling but to explore why we might be uncomfortable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are going to start by thinking about justice as it's described in the Belhar Confession. Remember, this is a confession that comes from South Africa when people were not treated fair or well, and they were being actually separated, and the government was telling them to be separated. And that we were doing this to each other. And so this, the church wrote this confession to, to convict itself and to confess what they believe and what we believe to be true in the teachings of God in Scripture. So justice, I think the first thing we have to talk about, just briefly, is that justice is a really big idea. And it covers a lot of different kinds of things. So the judicial system the courts and the laws and going to court because you've broken a law and being punished and all that sort of thing. That's a piece of justice, but it is not the only piece. It is not the measure of justice that we are given in scripture. So we need to just set aside that, uh, recognizing that it's good and it's real and that there are parts of scripture that do speak to that, but that is not the only thing that God is talking about when he talks about justice. So we're going to try to narrow in today on a specific way of understanding justice personally. And then after church, we'll talk about what that might mean for the community of God's people, the church. So we start by pulling out the Belhar Confession. And we're going to start by just reading the first two statements under Article 4. So number four. And why don't we read the first one together? The first bullet point there. We believe that God has revealed himself 
as the one who wishes to bring about justice and true peace among people. This is what Jesus himself did when he read from the scrolls in the synagogue. Remember, he he read from Isaiah and he read a passage that spoke of justice being done, of the prisoner being set free, of the blind receiving sight. He spoke of himself that way. And he's also the king of God's kingdom, which is a kingdom of peace and justice and shalom. And so he is the one who brings justice and true peace among people. Let's do the second bullet point together. We believe that God, in a world full of injustice and enmity, is in a special way the God of the destitute, the poor, and the wronged. Okay, so this is one that makes some people uncomfortable. How could God be special to someone and not special to someone else? Aren't we all equal before God? That's kind of the question that that gets posed. We're going to explore that together in our scripture passage, but first we need to make sure we understand what these words mean. So enmity, what does that mean? Very strong hatred and division and separation and attitude of us and them. Is what enmity means. Us and them. That kind of attitude. And destitute. What does destitute mean? Poor. But not just poor. Because poor is listed in our paper here. The destitute, the poor, and the wronged. Destitute means without any resources. Without the resources to change your circumstances. Without the ability to help yourself or anyone else. Destitute is like not having any options. Destitute is feeling like you have no hope. So destitute is another way of describing what the Old Testament teaches us about the people who are the lowest in our society or people who are judged to be poor and the widows and the orphan. A lot of times the Old Testament describes them as downtrodden. Downtrodden is this image of being trampled on, of being stomped, of people doing this to one another. Downtrodden is what leads to being destitute. And God, over and over in the Old Testament, talks about lifting up the downtrodden so that they can't be trampled on by others. God, over and over through the prophets, tells the people of God how angry he is at how they are stomping and stamping and beating each other up by their economics, by their, their social standards, by, all, by the way that they're choosing to live together as a community. And so if God is a God of justice, and he gives us a picture of justice, which is making it so that no one is getting stomped on, then that's different than a court of law kind of justice, isn't it? Okay. But is God a a God in a special way to people in that kind of situation? Well, let's put those away, put those aside for a second and read together now this story in Luke. So this is a parable that Jesus is telling. This is a story that Jesus is telling. And he's telling it to the Pharisees 
which are the religious leaders of the time who he has already said really love money way too much. And that they don't understand that their love of money is leading them to not actually love and serve God. So this is one of the parables he's telling them, a story that he's telling them to help them get the message. Okay, so Luke 16, verse 19. So there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things but now he is comforted here and you are in agony besides all this between you and us a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so and no one can cross from there to us he said then father i beg you to send him to my father's house for i have five brothers and that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. So we talked about parables a while ago, so I'm just going to remind you of some stuff. So parables don't teach us everything. They're trying to teach us one very specific thing. So what this parable is about, or not about, sorry, what this parable is not about is about doing good things so that you can be with Abraham in heaven. And if you do bad things, you're going to be suffering in a bad place for eternity. That's not what this parable is trying to to teach us, okay? But it's using images that the people of the time knew. So people wanted to be in the bosom of Abraham. They wanted to be close to Abraham. So God used that want to speak into their lives. And, you know, who wants to be tormented, right? So, but people understood that idea. And so he uses those images. So what helps us to get at what this parable or this story that Jesus is telling is actually about is the surprise that happens in a parable, right? Remember that? Surprises. There's always a surprise that happens in these stories when what you expect to happen does not happen and something else happens in its place. In this case, the something that happens and surprises us is something that we should come to expect. It is the reversal of the status of these two men. 
So let's go back to the beginning of the story. The rich man is described as having purple and fine linen. So it was literally against the law to wear purple unless you had a certain amount of money and position in the community. And to get the dye to make your purple clothing was quite expensive. Like you had to like send away for stuff. So it was quite a bit, quite a use of a resource to make sure that people knew who you were and how much money you had. Right? It's a purposeful act to, to, to do. And not only does this man choose to wear such nice, I just realized I'm wearing a purple necklace. That was not intentional. But not only does this man choose to show off his wealth that way, but he also shows off his wealth by enjoying the best life that he can make for himself. So he doesn't just feast sumptuously on feast days, but he eats the most extravagant dinners every day. He would be the talk of the town, right? He would be somebody that other people would envy He is so rich that he lives in a place that has a gate. He lives on a compound. It's like a gated community. This rich man, though, his fortune is reversed when he dies. And the poor man, this poor man who sits on the outside of his gate, who is destitute, And we know he's destitute because he can't even help stopping the dogs from licking him. He is so tired and weak, he can't even stop these dogs from stealing what little crumbs he might have to eat. And all he does is long for the chance to eat something from this man's table full of food that probably gets thrown out at the end of the day. In fact, at this time, they didn't use napkins, but they used bread as their napkins. So they would wipe their hands on the bread, and all this man wants is that piece of bread that someone else thought was just worthy to clean up with. That is being destitute, and that is being poor. That is the picture. Now, did you notice, though, that this man has a name? Let me tell you something, friends. This is the only character in any of the stories that Jesus tells that has a name. This is the only time where Jesus gives a name to a man who has no dignity. In a story, it's the only time he does that. And that name, Lazarus, means God helps God helps what should have been a call to action for this rich man who knew this poor man was outside of his gate every day. And we know he knows because he calls Lazarus by his name when he's talking to Abraham. He says, send Lazarus to me. Send Lazarus to my brother. Send Lazarus. He knows this man. He was not oblivious to the man outside of his gate. But Jesus gives dignity and reminds the world that God helps the destitute, 
and the poor and the wronged. So yes, perhaps God is in a special way the God of the poor and the destitute and the wronged because he does things and asks us to do things that we are not willing to do for them. Over and over in the Old Testament, right, that picture of the downtrodden, those who have been stamped on, and God is telling us that's not the way we should be. And he lifts up those who are lowly. And then Jesus adds to that teaching. And he says not only will God lift up those who are low, but God will also bring down those who are high. And that's the story that we get in this parable. That's what we're meant to be seeing and learning, that Jesus has expanded this work and our understanding of justice by showing us that we are meant to be part of this great reversal that brings hope to the world. That if God helps Lazarus and we are God's people, aren't we to help Lazarus? And here's the problem. And we see the message that we're supposed to get in that surprise, right? The reversal. And in the conversation that happens between Abraham and Lazarus. I mean, excuse me, Abraham and the rich man after that reversal. Here's the problem. The rich man still doesn't get it. Because what does he ask Abraham to do? He asks Abraham to have Lazarus continue to serve him, to serve a purpose for him, to ease his suffering. Rather than hearing it as a call to repentance for how he has lived, his first thought is for what he can gain. And then when Abraham says, nope, that's not going to work, buddy, the time for that kind of recompense and that kind of relationship between you was on earth. When you had all these good things and Lazarus was suffering, he says, well, send him to my brothers so that they can repent and be changed. And Abraham says, you guys already have everything that you need. And that's the part that's supposed to hit us too. For we have the law that Moses wrote, and we have the message of the prophets that Abraham is saying his brothers already have. We have the law, and we have the prophets. We have the scriptures that teach us this way of living and seeing justice. And we have, even more so, the fulfillment of those things in the life and message of Jesus Christ. And if even with all of that, we cannot be convinced. I don't know what to do. Even with all of that, if we cannot be convinced that God is about changing the story of this world and he's about changing the story on a personal level. And that, yeah, God is a God in a special way to those who need him because they because and perhaps through the way that they receive that help from him. So often when we are people who are in power and have lots of good things, right, we forget about God. 
We forget about God. We put him aside. But when we are poor and destitute and when we have been wronged and we feel helpless, we cry out to God. And so, yeah, maybe God is in a special way, the God of the poor, the destitute, and the wronged, because they receive what he has to give them. Because they are open to the Holy Spirit to be transformed and changed. For their circumstances to be put in a new light, in the light of how God would have us be in this world. Maybe he is in a special way that kind of God because he does good things which they recognize as his gift to them. Because the temptation on the other side, right, is to not recognize that you even need God. To miss out on knowing the breadth and the height and the depth of God's work for you. Because you feel so confident and capable of doing it yourself. Be careful, friends. Be careful. For the promise of Christ is a reversal. So that being made and brought down low, you might be rebuilt and renewed and brought and lifted by God, not yourself. And we already have these words and the law and the prophets that show us the way. We read them in our confession, the Belhar. That what we do tells the world what we believe God does. So I'll read, I'll read these next ones. We'll go down to the third bullet point now. That we believe that God calls the church to follow him in this. For God brings justice to the oppressed and gives bread to the hungry. Bread the rich man was unwilling to give. God frees the prisoner and restores slight the blind. We believe that God supports the downtrodden. He protects the stranger. He helps the orphans and the widows and blocks the path of the ungodly. And we must accept that sometimes the blocking of the path of the ungodly is done by God's people. That we don't just let God do this on his own, but we join God in doing this work. And that there is a place for the church to stand in peaceful resistance to the powers of this world when they teach and try to get us to believe something that is not true about God and about each other. That God, that for God, pure and undefiled religion, the one that pleases him, the acts that please him is to visit the orphans and the widows and their suffering. And that God wishes to teach the church to do what is good and to seek the right. That the church must therefore stand by people in any form of suffering and need, which implies, among other things, that the church must witness against and strive against any form of injustice, so that justice may roll down like waters, 
and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That the church as the possession of God must stand where the Lord stands, namely against injustice and with the wrong. That in following Christ, the church must witness against all the powerful and privileged who selfishly seek their own interests and thus control and harm others. This is not easy work. And sometimes it is dangerous work. So therefore, we reject any ideology which would legitimate forms of injustice and any doctrine which is unwilling to resist such an ideology in the name of the gospel. We reject anyone who cries peace when there is no peace. We don't just reject that. We don't reject them. We reject the, the truth being told to us. When somebody says that there is peace and we know that there is no peace, we do not accept their command to be understanding that there is peace. That was a little awkward, but I think you get it. We don't just accept what someone tells us to be true, but we seek to see the truth of Christ in these places. And we seek to serve not only ourselves, but we seek to serve those whom God has called us to seek and to serve. In the Old Testament, it's a quartet. It's the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the stranger among you. Over and over and over again, those four. And then Jesus himself expands it to include the people who are sick and who would be considered unwhole and not holy. So like the, the lepers and those with sores, all those people who in the Old Testament they would have had to stay away from because they were unclean. Jesus over and over again heals those people on the Sabbath and reminds us and his people that no longer is there a dividing wall. Anything that we can use, remember, to say, you belong over here, I belong over there. We don't belong together, but instead, Jesus unites us and says, you are the boundary of the presence of God. You are the one who works as God in this world now. You are the one who welcomes in and helps people experience the goodness of God because you are the hands and feet of God. Over and over in the New Testament, Jesus says things like doing justice. He describes justice as, as giving your second jacket to someone who doesn't have a jacket, of giving food to someone who is hungry, of visiting someone who is in prison, of alleviating some of that physical suffering, which we know frees up their hearts and their minds to be able to even consider the goodness of God, to be able to even understand the goodness of God. So justice is not just something big, but it is something that you and I can seek to live. Justice and righteousness are two terms that are used all over the Bible, and many times they're the same word, just being translated differently. So anytime I want you to try this, anytime you read in the New Testament the word righteousness and you think about it being about how you morally live, 
I want you to think about it in terms of justice, about helping someone else experience wholeness and equality and fairness and see if that changes what you hear. For God is a God of justice. He loves justice. And he loves when we love justice. Amen.